When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is George Bevis, founder and former CEO of Tide Bank. As many of you know, Tide is a bank for small to medium-sized businesses. They are currently valued at $650 million dollars, They serve over 400,000 businesses and make tens of millions in revenue. Today, George is running his own venture studio, Can Do. If you think his journey was easy, I assure you it wasn't. The startup journey is never the easy, straightforward path it appears to be from the outside. So let's dig a little deeper and uncover the real story on Founders Uncut. In 2015, the early days of Tide, George faced a key team challenge that might change the trajectory of the company and also almost ran out of money in the first year. The interesting thing to note is anyone would assume that anyone rational would only start a journey building a neobank or a banking business if they knew they had access to millions of dollars in capital. But I wasn't that sensible. So I did start Tide when the most I could possibly beg for was like, a, you know, a few hundred thousand here and there um, in the early days, like, a, like it was any other sort of basic internet business. And so in the very first year of Tide, I had raised just £150,000 to fund a tech team, which then almost instantly fell apart with a CTO who effectively ran off the code. So we had no product. I did then manage to find one other CTO. We still didn't meaningfully have a product. We just had a demo. And I had tried raising additional bits and bobs of money towards the back end of the year, mainly in pitches arranged by a sort of silent co-founder that I had in the business uh, who was very well connected with angels. And I'd failed because quite reasonably, these angels had realized that this uh, (laughs) business at the time was looking a lot like a walking corpse. So uh, it was Christmas. And because I'd had quite a stressful year, I was off on holiday in Asia. My co-founder, who doesn't celebrate Christmas, emailed me on Christmas Day with a relatively robust email pointing out that we were about to run out of cash. How much ca- Like how much runway did you have at that point? I mean, I should think at that point we had, you know, a good six weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so if you count liabilities, probably like already under, but yep, go ahead. <laughs> so, um And as a result, uh, in his view, I should take a a pay cut of 100% and my uh, CTO should take a pay cut of 50%. And I was fairly uncomfortable about taking my personal pay cut, but I knew it was more of a problem actually for the CTO to take a a 50% uh, and I might lose him. But my co-founder was pretty robust in his email. It did not include any sort of 
you know, happy Christmas message or anything like that. Uh, I realized I was in a desperate straits and the business was going to potentially fail. But the one advantage I did have was that he knew I was in another continent and that it was Christmas and therefore I could probably get away with not replying for a few days. So that gave me just enough window to do the thing I never wanted to do. I was all very clear I would never do, uh, which was to ask friends to bail me out. And I, I did. I asked uh, two personal friends to invest £25,000 each, which they kindly did into this walking corpse. And that sort of resuscitated it. But it also meant that I then uh, was bringing some money back to the table. So then when a few days later I did reply to my co-founder's email, I had a little bit of power in that discussion and I could inform him that actually we weren't going to be doing these pay, uh, pay cuts and the business would proceed uh, as I thought appropriate. Yeah. Um, of course, after that, the rest of the business, you know, proved itself to be quite an all right business. And my friends got uh, you know, very big return on their it's initial investment. Your friends probably thought they were doing you a favor. And in fact, it turns out you were doing them a favor at the end of the day. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So, uh, um, yeah, so it, it all worked out in the end. But my goodness, we, we were close to death then. Yeah, that's terrifying. How does that feel? Like, how do you, how did you feel in that moment? Because I think going to ask your friend when also like you see something that's a vision, but there, you don't really have any real data points at the time to prove that there is something there. And you're asking someone that you really trust for money. Like, how, how, do, how do you get through that moment? And how do you think through it? Um, it felt pretty shit. I had, in a previous venture, lost friends' money, and I didn't like that feeling, so I didn't want to have it again. With the amount of money at stake, in the worst possible case, I could have, if tired of fail, I could have gone back to doing a fancy, highly paid corporate job and use that to potentially pay back my friends or something like that, uh, which, in fact, I had done for a previous venture that had failed with, with friends' money. So, yeah, that was the reason why I was comfortable taking in total 50 grand rather than, you know, 500 grand, which would be a lot mm -hmm. harder to pay back. But, it, yeah, it's, it's not a nice feeling when you're um, yeah. so desperate that you need to ask your friends for money. Yeah, no, I, I can only imagine. Um, it wasn't your first venture. As you said, you had multiple. Actually, technically, you started Facebook before Facebook in 2000, <laughs> before digital cameras came out. So a little, a little, there is something about venture and startups of the timing being right, right? Um, and But you started SpeedStyle and you, you've started a few ventures. So just tell us a little bit, like, what did you learn from starting other ventures before you started Tide? The key thing that I care about more than anyone else I've met is a near total obsession with the ratio of lifetime value, customer lifetime value to cost of customer acquisition, which is often talked about a metric, but in my view, it is the metric. And so every venture that my new incubator looks at now uh, focuses really, really hard on on that. Uh, and that is the way that we decide whether or not a venture is a, a good idea or not. Mm. Yeah, it's often talked about a lot as like a metric, but I think to your point, being obsessive about it is probably not that common. Um, and you learn that from probably SpeedCell where those unit economics were not as good, right? That's exactly right. So SpeedCell was a spectacularly shit business model. So it, it ticked almost every box for a really stupid startup. Uh, do you want to tell everyone what do, it was? Just yeah, so we, we used to do buy and sell secondhand goods. And that is an appalling business for all of the following reasons. Number one is when people want to sell, get rid of stuff in their house, they usually only want to do it once every few years. So you've, it's not a recurring uh, customer business. It's very expensive to find customers, make them aware that you exist in the first place. Then they'll only use you once. Then when they use you, it's extremely logistically complicated to gather in all these secondhand uh, products and check them and then resell them. But also, not only is it complicated when it it goes right, but an awful lot of the time it goes wrong because people sell you defective stuff which you don't realize is defective and then you've resold it. Uh, so we had a 
one weekend where if I hadn't convinced one eBay customer to reverse their eBay feedback on our company, our entire eBay account was going to be shut down, uh, for example. And at the end of it, uh, the margins were terrible. So, so there is no way that any any sane individual would, would launch one of these businesses. I say that, actually. There's a number of people who have launched these businesses. In fact, I notice on TechCrunch, there's usually sort of one every year of, of somebody who um, is making the terrible life decision to invest years of their life building another <laughs> one that will inevitably fail. <laughs> Well, you definitely learned a lot. I think you said after SpeedSell in 2011, you used the term you were broken and bankrupt. Yeah. Um, so you got a job, presumably also to help pay back your friend's money. Um, you know, can you just talk a little bit about the actual mental journey of being a founder, right? Because I think at that time, you're obviously broken and bankrupt technically, but you just are physically probably spent, right? Like, what is that taxing journey look like and, and why did you decide to get back into it again yeah. at Tide and now again with other ventures? So start from the point a few months before a business fails uh, and take you through the sort of psychological journey, which I think is quite common. So everyone assumes that the moment of business failure is in that moment incredibly traumatic. But actually, if you've been through it, lots of people who've been through it, including myself, would say that moment itself is something of a relief. Um, It's the months prior to that which are fruity because on the one hand... Yes, you probably have known for months that this thing is failing uh, subject to some sort of amazing Hail Mary moment. So that's very tough and very traumatic. But on the other hand, you're probably living on a a shoestring and uh, have spent years doing something very traumatic. And you know that if and when the thing does collapse, you'll be able to go and get a regular job like everyone else and, and go back to having a normal life. And actually, that's very attractive. So the point of actually shutting the thing down might be very sad for some founders, but many founders I've spoken to say that actually it's a great sense of release that they are back in in the world of of normal people. And that's how I felt about it. A key part is, of course, that you should treat the staff well and make sure that they go off to do good things afterwards and they don't suffer. So long as you've achieved that, very likely you you can feel cheery. But you're still likely to be broke. So you will need to go and get a source of income. In my case, I did a string of contracting jobs for a few years the fact of having been an entrepreneur meant that I was a dramatically better negotiator about my day rate than I otherwise would have been. <laughs> so uh, I, I was able to secure really, in my view, quite shocking day rates, which I then... Hopefully I'm not paying the day rate right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, which I was able to then plow back in a very tax-efficient manner into new ventures without taking it as uh, you know income, which would be subject to income tax. So um, I had a little team of developers because I still had the bug for entrepreneurship. Like, we hadn't... I hadn't done a bad job in speed sell. It was a terrible business, but I'd executed all right, so I still had the bug. I was pretty knackered, but you know, I had enough energy for a few years to have a couple of developers testing out different things. And then the opportunity to do Tide presented itself, and that was an incredibly easy decision because you know, mainly using other people's money, I had a shot at building an enormous business, which is, uh, yeah. you'd be a fool to turn that down. Yeah, and so I want to go into Tide and how that may have felt different than speed sell, but just going back to, I thought what you said about the kind of psychological journey of the failure was super interesting. And and I've never heard that before, but that makes a ton of sense. Before you get to the point of relief, right, when you're back at the like wobbling, I don't know what's going to happen. How do you know when to say, you know what, I'm just going to keep trying and when to say like, that's it. You know what? Like, how do you make that decision? Yeah. Um, it's tough. And I suspect if you're 10 different entrepreneurs, you get 10 different answers and the least experience of them would give you the most annoying sort of, oh, just keep going till you can't keep going anymore. And that's that's wrong, right? It, it, um, there is a point where the default outcome is failure and you've run out of ideas for how your successes can happen. And at that point, you should stop. 
yeah. for sure. And possibly you should stop before then if there are aspects about the rest of your life, you've got family dependence, et cetera, et cetera, that change the calcul- the risk calculus a bit. Yeah. Um, but you should certainly stop when the default outcome is failure and you haven't got any ideas, you know, confident ideas for success. Yeah. So Tide must have felt different, right? Because Tide... I'm sure had its ups and downs, but also grew really well. But you also sort of disagree with this famous Mark Andreessen post about product market fit and just feeling like it takes off. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what did quote unquote product market fit feel like at Tide? You obviously are serving 400,000 businesses. So there is a clear use case um, that people are appreciating. But tell us a little bit more about like what you think about product market fit and how the growth at Tide maybe felt different than things you had experienced before. So the key message that I took away from Mark Andreessen's post about product market fit is that you know when you have it because customers are ripping this product out, out, out of your hands and you can't manufacture enough of it. And I have never had direct exposure to any company that has that experience. It is true. Yeah, if you invent Spotify, yes, you do have that feeling and that's very nice, but it's exceptionally rare. I suspect it's even rare in Andreessen Horowitz's portfolio, let alone anyone else's. Uh, In all other businesses that I've been exposed to, you still have to keep fighting for customers. You have to do marketing um, and and that doesn't go away. And and it's very normal for companies, both in early and late stages, really, really great companies to have to buy customers using advertising and something to be ashamed of. So I think uh, there is a myth of product market fit that you make something wonderful and suddenly people go crazy for it that isn't quite correct that you make something wonderful you have to pay to get it in front of people and then hopefully a proportion of them you know are persuaded that they want to try it and of course you'll get different proportions when the product is new than when it's old and well established which is actually why the ltv to cac becomes so important to your point (laughs) so talk about the decision to leave tide right you know talk about where you were in the journey and what made you make that decision to step back yeah so i enjoyed doing the early stages of a business and I think there's not a lot of entrepreneurs, or some, but there's not a lot who would find, particularly in a regulated financial services environment, that you know having a whole load of responsibility of a complicated compliance processes and all of that sort of stuff, plus all of the other hassles of just having a big business and having to do lots of HR and all the rest of it, is as fun as the early stages. So I was aware that the opportunity cost of me continuing to run Tide was that I wouldn't be able to do essentially the sort of stuff that I'm doing now, which is incubating other projects and that I wouldn't want to run Tide forever. So I first talked to Tide's chairman about that, I think it was in the middle of 2017, and early 2018, we sort of pressed the button on, you know, uh, we will go and find uh, someone else to to replace. And after a very full headhunter, and you have to use a really good headhunter to find a really good CEO, you can't do it on the cheap. But uh, after a very robust headhunter, we found a fantastic CEO who had run scale-up banks before, which is pretty valuable. In our sector, it's more important than it would be in other sectors to have sector experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the only thing that I was extremely sad about in exiting the CEO job was that I had handpicked every employee in the company, which at that point was about 85 people. And I liked every one of them. And I regretted that I didn't have an excuse to turn up and be in an office with them every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, you know, a bit empty. But in terms of like, the work, I'm very happy that, yeah. um, that that is being done by somebody who's not me. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, and I think that's a good feeling to have that you want to go see all the employees. Because I think we talk a lot about the founder journey, but it's not just the founders, right? There's an entire team building the company. Um, how do you think about leadership versus management and how do you think people would describe your style? Um, so on the first question, 
I like the definition that uh, leadership is causing people to do things that otherwise wouldn't happen. Um, and then when, when you're instructing people to do things that would happen anyway, I don't think that's really leadership. I think leadership is the point where you are, as I say, causing a, a different result to occur. Yeah, management is is just the process of corralling resources to, to uh, achieve the outcome that you have been told or decided that you need to achieve. My own style of leadership is... Uh, not perfect, is extremely warm, possibly to the point of being too warm. And you know, everyone who works for me pretty much, I think, would... would you, you struggle to find somebody who uh, worked for me who said I wasn't a nice bloke. That has pluses and minuses. I think it's interesting, actually, if you look at the data, the evidence that the highest performing CEOs are all the horrible psychopaths is pretty strong at this point. So um, so you sort of have to accept who you are the nice ones that you you may end up only in the, in the B team of outcomes, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have this, I have this debate all the time as a venture capitalist, right? Because we we often think, do we want to back somebody who we, like I personally spend a lot of time before I back a founder thinking about culture and values and will this person build a comp- good company? And I think without naming people, we can all think of great, successful outcomes that have been built with very toxic cultures. And it's usually not very good for employees. Um, but I agree. I, I struggle with that as well. But then I also think we're now in a moment where there have actually been a lot of great outcomes with good cultures. I think yeah. the, the extremes are still true, to your point. Um, but everything below the extremes, there's more than one way to build a company. And, and I hope that going forward, we see more of that. But it is an interesting question. And you can't ignore some of the outliers for sure. Um as you think about the earliest stages of a company, you know, how do you think about building the team? Like, how quick should you build the team? How do you think about those stages? So it's so critical to remember when you're hiring early hires that you're not only putting in place the people who do the work for the next six months, but you're also setting the DNA of the organization forever. And I, that's a lesson I learned in speed cell, despite the fact that speed cell clearly was not going to last forever or indeed even very long. Um, and so... In Tide, I was super strict about between employee number one and employee number two writing a set of behaviors that we look for in everyone that we were going to bring on, communicating it to them, making sure everyone knew that um, they had to behave in those ways, and recruiting strictly against those parameters and rejecting people who didn't, who were great potential employees who would do, have wonderfully successful careers elsewhere but didn't feel like they were quite aligned with the, uh, the sort of culture that I wanted to build. So, I mean, the, everyone talks about the cliches of only hiring super talented people and I think that is an admirable objective up to a point. I certainly found that you could just about do it, and this is back in you know, five years ago, but you could just about do it with commercial roles because there was so much talent available willing to work for cool startups. Mm. It's actually very hard to do that with technical startups. And we got lucky with some wonderful developers, but we also had some plodding developers as well. And much as we tried not to because that was the nature yeah. of the talent pool. But of course, you try and get super talented people. But actually, I think it's the, it's the behaviors and values piece that is uh, most critical. And do you think having the right culture internally translates to the customer experience? It has in tide. It's really just a coincidence that I built into the set of behaviors at the start of the tide journey that uh, humility was a, a behavior we would look for that was key. It was one of the, the it was actually the, probably the key one where we would most regularly reject candidates if we didn't think they had the humility. The reason why that matters in the context of how tide deals with its customers is that. Um, uh, there's a natural tendency in the banking industry to become arrogant and start treating your customers like dirt. And it, it, I, certainly 20 years ago when I uh, had my first job in, in the banking industry, that was absolutely standard across all banks as far as I could tell. 
tied staff, even internally, are incredibly respectful of the small business owners that they... I've never actually witnessed tied employees, and of course I'm still on the board, talking with anything other than you know awe of the struggles that small business owners have. And I think that is at least partly because the personalities of people we bring into the company, uh, they are humble people yeah. who aren't inclined to get arrogant and treat customers badly. I think that's great. Um, you've also talked about humility in choosing your VC. Talk to us a little bit about how should a founder choose the right... VC, and also if you were looking for humility in a VC, A, why is that really important? And B, how do you look for that? Yes. Um, I'll answer the second question first. It is essential to do your best to find humble VCs. Uh, you know, Maria, as, as you're aware, the, the industry of VCs is, is not, you know, 100% full of people who are famous for humility. Um, and the reason why that's a problem is that... Um, uh, Startups are making decisions typically with relatively little data. Often, founders are making decisions that they may not even be able to articulate perfectly why a right decision is right, but they do have dramatically better access to information than anyone else in a chaotic environment, and they're thinking about it 20 hours a day. So the probability that they are right on a given question, unless they're just the wrong CEO, is high. And an outsider VC who does inevitably have power, is less likely to be right when they disagree than maybe that outsider VC realizes, particularly if they lack humility. So founders can find themselves forced into decisions that they know are wrong um, to keep VCs happy. Um, and that is you know, wildly destructive to companies. So uh, founders should seek to, if they are going to take venture capital at all, to have VCs who demonstrate humility. The ways to do that that I'm aware of is not just to reference all the VCs before you take their money, but to reference them without them knowing uh, how you did it. So to directly reach out cold to the, um, their current and past portfolio CEOs for opinions and to know that portfolio CEOs, if they are at all lukewarm, that usually means they're very negative. Um, so a lot of CEOs will be super open and candid about their views, but if they're feeling reserved, they might feel scared to be completely blunt about how they don't like a VC. But um, nevertheless, if they're seemingly lukewarm, it's very likely actually behind that is a pretty a negative yellow, A yellow flag is a red flag <laughs> in all exactly those right. cases. Yeah. yeah, I also, I've talked to a lot of founders about this and have also noticed that a lot of them just do cold referencing. And a lot of founders don't do that, right? They just take the references the VC gives. But it turns out even if you've reached out on LinkedIn to someone you don't even know, but it's a founder who's worked with that VC, they'll often respond because especially if it's somebody value destructive, they don't want you to have the same experience. And um, it, there is this whole talk about value add in VC. And I do think sometimes VCs can be helpful, but I also think it's overstated in many cases. And, and because there's also value destructive VCs, you really have to try to make sure you're getting someone neutral to positive as opposed to the reverse, right? Um, let's dispel some other fundraising myths here. Um, how does it feel to raise? You've, you know, you're, you've had a very successful company. In If you follow the headlines, it looks like people just get term sheets left and right, and it's really easy. Like, what does the success rate look like that's good, and how does it actually feel to fundraise? The optimal number of term sheets in any fundraise is any, and um, <laughs> a lot of fundraisers end up with not any. So, uh, so I, yeah, I, I think uh, you're right. One could get the impression from reading TechCrunch and looking at Twitter, particularly for the U.S. startup scene, that startups will typically get 
a range of term sheets from great investors and yada, yada, yada. And that is so rarely the case. You know, of course, there are businesses that are in that situation. But yeah, no, even Tide, uh, you know, has found that it, they, we had to put a lot, a lot of work in to get uh, others. We, uh, actually, in the very early days of Tide, when I was pitching angels, and it was obviously a good idea, a lot of the angels had built businesses themselves, so they knew they, they needed the service. There, we had a more than 50% hit rate, but that is almost unheard of for startups. Yeah. And as the journey went on and we were pitching increasingly institutional investors who are looking at so many opportunities and you know, can find so many reasons to say no, no, the ratio got dramatically worse than that. And, and it, you know, we, we've never done a, a venture capital raise where we had anything like even a quarter of pitches, you know, turning into a tourfers. Yeah. So it, it is hard and grueling. Yeah, no, I think that's totally the reality. I also keep going back to your point about humility. I think it's a really good one. It's, it's also funny because I think if a VC pretends to know your space much better than you, something is also off, right? Because by definition, our jobs is to be very what is it, an inch deep and a mile wide? So know a little bit about a lot. But if you're living and breathing it every day, and I think it's probably a good thing if, if someone pretends to know your space more than you do, there's something about that. But I just wanted to comment on your humility. I think I, I've, I've interacted with you a few times and have found you to be extremely humble and insightful. So thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Thank you so much, George, for being with us here today and your humility. If you want to see more from George, check out teamcando.com. For more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.bc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face moments of fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for being with us today. And if George's story resonated with you, join us again on Founders Uncut.